Welcome to the Homie Hub Podcast. I'm your host, John Facundo. And on this show, I shoot the breeze with some of my friends about their everyday lives. Some of them have managed to go on to do some pretty cool stuff. I'm talking to regular people who sometimes go on to do extraordinary things. So kick back, listen in, and enjoy the show. This is the Homie Hub Podcast. If you're in school, you can't wait to real self. Get out. James, good to talk Hello, to my you. friend. How are you? Better than most, not as good as some. <laughs> so let's give a, a, a brief rundown of your bio. James Scholl is the regional leader for Veterans for All Voters in Fair Vote in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Uh, your career, your illustrious military career, started with uh, driving tanks in 95. You rose through the ranks to ultimately become the chief of intelligence for U.S. Coast Guard Sector San Francisco in 2017. Yep. You're an instructor for the U.S. Army Sur- Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School. You're an OH-58D Kiowa Warrior Scout helicopter pilot who did a tour in Kosovo. Uh, you also are a MH-65C Dolphin Helicopter Air Commander. You worked in Washington, D.C., in sensitive airspace. You then became a team leader for the Air Station San Francisco's exclusive airborne use of force team. And you became lieutenant commander uh, to 63-plus personnel intelligence uh, unit on the Atlantic coast. That's quite the career. It's just the scatterbrain career. Um, <laughs> it's always being the FNG guy <laughs> career. <laughs> well, start us start us from the top. Let's let's start from the very beginning, and give us give us your background. Well, I was kind of a late bloomer. I I quit school out of basically. I knew I was running out of money. So I quit school. I was going to Brooks Institute of Photography at the time and uh, doing pretty well. But uh, I started running out of money and I had to make a decision. So I went and uh, was a, a freelance assistant and started out in Sacramento, but ended up down in L.A., worked in L.A. for a couple of years, doing a myriad of things, largely photographic related, and uh, kind of just came to the conclusion that I don't really, really want to be a commercial photographer. Um, I like doing my own work. I'm, I'm kind of an artsy-fartsy guy in that sense. But uh, it uh, it dawned on me that if I was going to uh, be uh, profitable and, uh, and pursue something that was of interest to me, that I needed to change what I was doing. And uh, I had a relationship that I was getting pretty serious about at the time to this gal by the name of Lisa, who's still my wife and uh we uh i i i get i really just grew a wild hair and i said you know what i always kind of wanted to fly helicopters f it i'm gonna freaking join the army and everyone freaked out i mean i had friends calling me james what are you doing and uh my parents my, my dad was the only guy who said hey it makes sense to me i wish i was retired by now and uh so I did join the army with the intent of getting into aviation, and I think as a result of luck and ambition, I within two years got into flight school. Um, 
went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. By this time, I was definitely married, starting to have kids. And uh, and what I liked about the military, um, despite all of our foreign policy pitfalls <laughs> as a country, uh, I, I liked the variety that it provided me. Uh, I mean, I, I get bored easily, and it was neat to be able to move to a different place every couple of years. And uh, I got the helicopter of my choice when I finished flight school, flying OH-58 Deltas. That's the Kiowa Warrior. They've since retired it. And uh, went to Kosovo, actually volunteered for Kosovo. That's something my wife didn't know about for quite some time. Um, they had three people to choose from, and they said, um, hey, one of you guys are going. Figure it out amongst yourselves. Mm. And uh, and uh, that's how I ended up in Kosovo, which uh, was where I became an aircraft commander for the first time, or pilot command, as the Army calls it. Um, did a lot of... Aerial gunnery. I mean, but by the time we went to Kosovo, not to get in any foreign policy discussions, but I mean, it was relatively safe and tame, except for running into wires. I almost ran into wires and killed myself a couple times. That was pretty dicey. Flying around in canyons with night vision goggles on. And by the time we were there, we were looking for illegal woodcutters and cigarette smugglers. I mean, literally. <laughs> But, um, and did the survival thing. Um, I became a subject matter expertise, although I'd forgotten most of it by now, and, and harvesting the flora and fauna of lower Alabama when I taught uh, the Sears school there. Uh, it was before we had a, um, well, we, it was a, it was a, a SEER course at that time that was basically just geared for aviators. Um, and it was, uh, we didn't have, it wasn't as robust back then as, uh, as other SEER schools were throughout the Army and, and the DOD. So it was relatively tame, uh, all things considered. But I'd go out for a day and collect plants, even poison ivy and poison oak and and show it to the class and teach a class on these are the plants that you can eat, these are the ones that you can't eat, and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. I did it for over a year. And I started getting the itch to change again. And I always kind of had an idea in the back of my mind, you know, the Coast Guard would be, seems like it's just a, a positive mission. Seems mm -hmm. like such a cool thing. Uh, I never stopped flying in the Army. I flew even while I was a teaching seer. Um, on the side, not doing any significant mission-related work, but uh, I put in a packet for Coast Guard, and uh, eventually they came calling and uh, um, said, uh, how would you like to, <laughs> have we got something for you? How would you like to live <laughs> in Atlantic City, New Jersey? I said, okay, sure. Well, I, I guess I'm flying dolphins then, because I knew that dolphins were based out of there. And uh, then I made the abrupt transition to the Coast Guard. I had to first divorce myself from the Army, so I had to plan to get out because I was there for about nine years, mm -hmm. and I knew that at the time, I mean, it was, and this was back around 2005, 2006, because I made the transition in 2006, 
2005, there was still a future with nothing but back-to-back desert deployments. And mm. I had a young family. I wanted right. to see them. So um, that's when I made the decision to leave the Army. But Coast Guard gave me the added benefit of um, a, a military paycheck, basically, right? And the chance to retire as a military officer, um, which at the at the time was a warrant officer. A lot of people haven't heard about that rank, but I, I was a chief warrant officer, too. And uh, um, then became an, an ensign slash lieutenant junior grade, lieutenant, lieutenant commander, went on to the maritime ranks and, and the Coast Guard. And Coast Guard was a breath of fresh air. I mean, one of my frustrations with the Army was that everyone's kind of... Everyone kind of gets treated like the lowest common denominator sometimes. I mean, mm. you're, you might be a 35-year-old adult, but I, they're going to inspect your car for a four-day weekend and make sure you've right. got, you know, all the air pumped out. I mean, it's just it's the little things as, as, as ever. But uh, but I had a good time in the Army. I, I, I can't really complain. Uh, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I've got PTSD from anything. There's no reason why I should. Um, I've got other issues, but, (laughs) but, um, uh, the army was a great experience and, uh, I, I, I don't know what it's like there today. Um, I, I still think it's, it's a worthwhile organization to, to learn and to improve yourself and to serve your country. I'm Mm -hmm. glad I did it. Um, but I was also glad to transition to the coast guard, uh, because the coast guard, the Coast Guard is, it's much smaller. It's actually smaller than, than NYPD. Mm. And Really? Yes. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. It's, Coast Guard's a small organization, and it's it's reliant on on giving, on pushing the power down, mm-hmm. pushing the authority down. Um, it was... To my knowledge, when 9-11 happened, there was just a, an E-6 or, or, or an E-4, uh, and a single enlisted member with his crew in a small boat who started acting and uh, and doing the mission by him, you know, and reporting in uh, uh, with everything that he knew was going on and shipping people back and forth in the, in the harbor. Um, but you don't get that kind of authority uh, in the other services so much and, and the coast mm-hmm. guard does that well and they and they get good people and it makes a significant difference uh as far as so many other things and in, in the service but i flew the dolphin um they're up to i think building the echo model by now um and with an all glass cockpit it was still relatively conventional when i was flying it and so most folks don't know what a dolphin is Oh, yeah. Maybe you could explain a little bit about Good point. the differences. The Dolphin helicopter, um, if you've ever seen the difference between different Coast Guard helicopters, it's the smaller one. It's mm-hmm. uh, an, It was an aerospatial product at the time. I think it's been bought out by uh, American Eurocopter or whatnot. Um, but um, it's... 
it was actually originally a corporate helicopter that the Coast Guard had purchased and kind of shoehorned into a military role. Um, it, uh, it It's two pilots, rescue swimmer, and flight mechanic on board. And it's, yeah, it's the smaller one that the Coast Guard uses for a multiple mission profile. So you're in charge of, of flying that aircraft in sensitive airspace over Washington, D.C. Right. That was my Atlantic City tour. Uh, that was the first tour in the Coast Guard. I was an ensign and a JG and and a lieutenant. I was there for four years. And we would cycle out uh, as pilots. It was a big air station. There was like 60-something pilots there at the time. I don't, I don't know what they are today, but... Uh, I was still relatively junior, um, still just a co-pilot for over half the time I was there, or first pilot, rather. There's different pilot ranks, so to speak, as far as your capabilities up to air, um, uh, aircraft commander. And we had the mission of securing DC's airspace. Um, Air Force was a part of that, too. Mm-hmm. And we were part of the mesh uh, of uh, capabilities that that guard D.C. in the aftermath of 9-11 and aviation threats as they started to present themselves. Um, It was uh, very interesting uh, because the route structure over D.C. is intricate and there's specific places for helicopters to be and not be. And right. you fly right underneath the pattern of DCA, of, well, of National, of Reagan National. They don't like to, the tower doesn't, it's a long story, but the tower doesn't <laughs> like to call it Reagan National because of uh, some things that Reagan had, uh, had done with uh, workers' unions uh, with regard to air traffic control. But so... <laughs> Tower, funny story. Tower, tower just says no. We're National Tower. You know, okay. when, you, when you try to say we're Reagan Tower, um, but um, no, uh, we we would patrol frequently, uh, multiple times a day over DC, and uh, sometimes uh, we uh, would get diverted to um, react to uh, a potential threat. Uh, that would be flying in towards D.C. and wasn't talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. Why is this airplane showing up, uh, isn't saying anything to anyone, or isn't squawking the right codes and stuff like that? It's um, And for us, it was typically small aircraft that we'd react to and um, get them reversed away from where they needed to be and potentially save a life, uh, as right. a matter of fact. Or many lives as well, yeah. yes. Right. So it was primarily, if I'm understanding correctly, more of an interdiction type of setup versus a Absolutely. search and rescue type of setup. Correct. Although I'm sure you had that facet there as well. Um, we only did one thing at a time. And mm, DC okay. not, um, was not, and I don't believe is to this day, multi-mission oriented. Mm-hmm. It's got one purpose. And that's Congress... I'm sure paid for that 
augment to the Coast Guard to be singular in its focus. I, I had a couple of very real intercepts. Um, uh, one was uh, uh, a small high-wing airplane that wasn't talking to anyone. It was up near Baltimore, and uh, we'd come over and broadcast on the, the general frequency. Hey, um, you're critically close to national airspace, and uh, you need to turn around. Please land at the nearest airplane uh, airport and that's what they did and we landed and overwatched them and in came the sheriff department and uh, started asking some pointed questions to them i'm sure but we left by that time so right right but no it's aerial interdiction okay and, and that's um one of the many things that the coast guard does boy i i have to imagine that's extremely um complex and complicated because of all the traffic commercial traffic that comes through there as well right um and i'm sure it's a finely honed system i gotta believe that um i would say yes it is and i have a fair amount of faith in the faa i mean everyone who's using the system pretty much has to mm -hmm. uh, the however in dc the the commercial traffic that exists is fairly well orchestrated and scripted as to what's going on i mean that it generally doesn't come with any surprises as to where it's going to go i mean it's coming down the river down the potomac and it's going to turn in and land at at uh, dca and depending on the winds of course but uh um it's the the wild card over dc uh, for us tended to be other military aircraft i mean right there's a marine helicopter okay well he wasn't talking to us maybe and and so looking out for there is still a, a a level of an element of possible surprise if you <laughs> didn't keep your head on a swivel of course that your whole job as a helicopter pilot so even though you were primarily an interdiction um deployment you did have a rescue swimmer as well. Is that standard protocol that you have uh, somebody no. that, that... You, you, we didn't do that for okay. interdiction work. Um, okay. it's, it's typically a flight mechanic who is specially trained, uh, mm -hmm. in the back uh, to either use special equipment or, or whatnot. Um, no, there, the, the legacy mission of the coast guard when doing search and rescue, that's always a, uh, a swimmer on board right right and uh and other i mean there's other um rescue swimmers have uh, a certain degree of of medical training of course mm -hmm. and uh so you'll use them even if you, you're not going to put them in the water i mean there might be a uh a a medical response or simply um taking an injured coastie off the back of a coast guard cutter you know which is mm -hmm. something i did a couple times uh you want the rescue swimmer to stabilize or overwatch and maintain a situational awareness on with regards to your patient and stuff like that so um it uh they're they're phenomenal rescue swimmers are i have to say complete studs and stud ets uh, they're, they're freaking amazing.
So following following your your time in Atlantic City on the East Coast, you came back out here. Is that correct to San yeah, Francisco? Yeah, I scored a, a, a relatively coveted slot uh, in being able to come out to Air Station San Francisco, which was um, unbeknownst to me at the time, not my last aviation tour in the Coast Guard because I mm. was moving on from there. Um, but uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, it was it was pretty much the apex of my career uh, as far as just having a fun and rewarding experience. Uh, I, I did scheduling while I was there. That wasn't a big deal. I had a couple of, uh, I had a couple of interesting search and rescue cases to be sure. Tell us some, tell us some stories. Here's okay. So here's probably the most dramatic one. Um, it was a bright and sunny day, and it was late October, around the 20th, something like that. And uh, I was the duty aircraft commander, um, and uh, another guy who was former Navy. Coast Guard gets a lot of former military peeps. Mm-hmm. And, but I was the aircraft commander that day, and we, we did our brief, and I got to work doing scheduling stuff. Star alarm goes off. So we run out, get our dry suits. You know, on the West Coast, you all year round, even in the summertime when it's hot, you're wearing a dry suit because of the water <laughs> temperature. It's right? freezing, right? The water takes a lot of people out. I mean, yeah. before you can get to them, believe it or not. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's that cold California coast water that makes all the fog. Um, yep. it's, uh, it's a big, deal if you get into it for <laughs> and, and no one knows where you're that you're there but uh and that's what happened kind of on this day because uh a group of tourists uh, was walking along the beach in carmel uh at a place called i think it's locally known as monastery beach it's um it's right before you know how we took our school tours back in the day and we go down to oh, it's a state park it's right down there edward weston did a lot of work down there photographically um it's where all the butterflies are right south of carmel there you know what i'm talking right. about this rogue wave comes up and drags and this sounds like science fiction dude but it dragged two people out mm. one was a british tourist and i think the other i don't i don't know about the other gal but they got dragged out i mean it's like the ocean was coming for them several people several people got knocked over but it's an erratic beach i mean it's not the place that you want to swim just stay away from the water when you go (laughs) um and but we didn't know because we just knew that there was a person in the water down in near carmel so we start the helicopter, launch, go straight up over the Santa Cruz Mountains, clear, beautiful day. And I heard some guy talking on the radio that he was out looking for him, right? He had been um, a California 
state parks uh, uh, search and rescue person. The California state park system actually has some search and rescue people. This guy mm. drove around or had a jet ski uh, connected to a truck and he would put in in the beach and go look for people. Right. And Baywatch, and was, essentially. Yeah. Baywatch yeah. for Monterey area. So he's talking on the phone. He hears us and, uh, you know, we were Coast Guard Copter 6555. I remember the tail number to this day. And he says, I just picked one up. Come down near where I'm at. I can't find the other one. We knew that we still had a person in the water. There were assets around on the beach, uh, a, f- a fire department. They had a boat. They hadn't gotten in the water yet, but they were uh, they were getting ready. It had been, I think we got there in about 25 minutes, something like that. But it had been nearly 45 minutes to an hour since we got, I mean, since they made the call. That's a long time. And uh, we rolled in there and we saw a person in the water immediately, you know, when no one else was, because, you know, you're obviously a couple hundred feet up the, up the air. Um, well, to complicate things, we, we had been full on fuel. You know, the Dolphin helicopter, the H-65, is it's got a a low a, a small margin for for hovering typically especially if you're full on fuel if you're really heavy uh, you have to be careful about the about torque considerations on the transmission and it used to be the engines but it's transmissions anymore and uh, we went through all the uh, the preliminary, you know, the preparation and got the rescue swimmer ready, but we rocked into a hover very quickly and we were overweight, um, mm. so, which, but it was like, it's, it's not like alarms were going off or anything like that. You know, we had uh, the, the rotor, there's a rotor switch that we can increase the rotor speed, believe it or not, in, in right. the Dolphin helicopter. We had that engaged, and, and and we had all the aspects of the checklist, but we were overweight. So we were breaking mm. a rule, right? And uh, we still had a, a decent enough margin for hovering, and, and we were safe. It's just that we were breaking this particular rule set uh, during that window of time when that limitation was given out to the entire fleet. And uh, we came into a hover. Uh, photographers were taking pictures of the circumstance, and I, I've got that photo around somewhere today. It's in the I clipped it out of the paper. But we deployed our rescue swimmer, and the hero of the day was this rescue swimmer. He was flipping amazing. What he did, what he he went to the victim, uh, and immediately, you know, they can they can stay suspended. Uh, with their, now they got flippers on and stuff like that. So he's trying to give mouth to mouth, trying to clear her airway out in the middle of the water. And there's, there's kelp all over the place and the fire department's coming out. The fire department gets to him and uh, he's, he, he gets her loaded up on the back, this, this poor lady. And he's not having any luck with um, getting her revived. Resuscitated, right. I mean, it, she, 
she wasn't breathing. And um, so the fire department gets the boat stuck, right? <sighs> and it's always a, a safe revolution to, in lieu of hoisting somebody, to put them on a surface asset if that's available. And right. and, and that's what we went with at the time. Otherwise, we would have considered hoisting them, you know, but we weren't the only game in town. Well, the mm-hmm. fire department gets stuck on kelp. You know, with their pontoon boat. So right. here, here's our rescue swimmer performing uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, doing the chest compressions, doing going through all the motions. In I mean, this this was a dude who worked in the ER on the side. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he was like a, a well-rated uh, medical tech uh, or nearly a nurse. I, I, I don't remember. It's been a while. But he's clearing kelp out of the um <laughs> the the uh, the spinner for the boat he's 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 starting the engine right in between chest compressions he's doing chest mm. compressions breathing for this lady and unscrewing their boat for them you know wow and he gets it started they get her on the kelp and they get back and uh, you know you know it, it it didn't turn out to be a save uh, right this poor lady died she was on vacation and got mm. swept out to sea uh, and her poor husband was watching in desperation uh, from the beach you know Ugh. I mean I, I I didn't know what to expect you know for having broken that rule set but uh, my commander uh air station commander at the time said, James, you did the right thing. All you guys did the right thing because if we'd have waited, I said, oh no, sorry, we got to burn down fuel before we can ever, you know, save it. Right. Obviously. Right. So, and that, that dude who was out there searching from the California state parks uh, and his jet ski, he, uh, he ended up visiting the air station and said, uh, this was the most well-oiled governmental response that I've seen mm-hmm. in my career. And he gave us a bunch of cookies, I guess, but, uh, uh he's all, I, I can't afford much else, but I got you these cookies and, uh, uh, hope we can work together more in the future. One of the resounding things to me about the coast guard is just, you know, every military branch is a, is a branch of service. Coast guard is at the pinnacle of that. They're in the service of others. Mm-hmm. And you can see that directly by their actions. And it was a, it was a great life. I really, I mean, I was pinching myself for the first couple of years. I am, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. It was, it mm-hmm. was, it was literally a dream come true. I mean, the whole time I was in the army, I was thinking, gosh, I wonder if I can get in the Coast Guard. That sounds cool. But, um, and I prepared for it and was very fortunate uh, in, in getting the opportunity. Uh, one way that that people will uh, describe the difference between the Coast Guard uh, and the other services is uh, it's like the difference between cops and firemen, right? right? It's actually more like being a fireman when you're in the Coast Guard than, than, than you know, that's probably the closest comparison to it because you sleep there at work sometimes. Uh, you're on duty for a span of time, um, you know, and, and you're a first responder in, in many ways. Uh, and you're waiting for the bell to go off. Uh, 
that's probably the closest analogy. It's just that you got, uh, you know, your your governmental overlord, his Department of Homeland Security, used to be Department of Transportation, but mm. uh, uh, yeah, uh, but now it's DHS as a result of 9-11's reconfiguring. Right, right. Um, uh, there was, uh, let me see what else. One, <laughs> this is kind of a, uh, one response that I, I'll tell you about two more. My very first, okay, my very first search and rescue case, I was a brand new co-pilot right out of, right out of the transition in, in Mobile. And it was December in Atlantic City, and uh, I was part of the duty crew with the, uh, the operations boss, the ops officer uh, for the air station. So I was flying with him. You know, he was, you know, commander, and I was just an ensign, you know, mm-hmm. brand new Coast Guard pilot. You know, I'd been around flying for a while, but so middle of the night in December, it was snowing, and we get a call for some lost hunters in Delaware Bay. So we take off. You know, there's snow flurries, just a little bit. It's not, wasn't bad. But uh, we started a search pattern up and down the Delaware Bay. And we knew there were hunters, probably had John boats of some sort. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking. And we looked for probably a half hour, 40 minutes, something like that. When right in front of us, I mean, just like in the movies, we see a flare go off. Right. Mm. And these folks, they were some hunters who had uh, hired a guide, but their engine had quit on them, and they couldn't get anywhere, and they were stuck in this remote spot, uh, and they had a dog. So it, we weren't going to be able to hoist this, this group of hunters all in one iteration. So we did it in two different iterations. We flew back and forth, uh, took them to the air station, uh, and uh, it was the first rescue that I had had for my career, and I was just kind of the co-pilot. And the dog, who we rescued, of course, um, curled up into a donut right behind my seat and was perfectly well behaved. You know, you never know. If, you know, you bring, <laughs> okay, we got a dog in the cockpit. You know, right. And uh, uh, oddly enough, <laughs> part, funny part of that story because that went off successfully, but. One of the hunters said, "Hey, we're parked in the uh, that gravel parking lot. Can you just drop us off? <laughs> like, like the Coast Guard's gonna land on this gravel parking lot and drop off these hunters. All right, see you." And uh, <laughs> taxi service. <laughs> my ops officer had some choice words that did not probably they they didn't make it to him through the uh, ender the intercom (laughs) oh right right yeah (laughs) um the aircraft commander uh, was a uh, was a very well experienced former enlisted coastie who uh i respected greatly and he uh he 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 taught me a lot of things uh down the road uh, about certainly about legacy sar and about uh, the coast guard culture and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah he uh he had uh, it stayed inside the intercom system, but he had choice words about people <laughs> requesting to be dropped off by their car by the Coast Guard. Uh, um, and then we dropped him off after two runs, and 
that was my first sour case. Uh, and later on, at, uh, I, I won't go along on this one, but I had as a brand new aircraft commander at Air Station Atlantic City, I had the uh, the movie uh, typical burning sinking vessel with people in the water. I had okay. one of those cases. Right. And wouldn't you guess? I got there as I mean the the ship sank. There was debris, mm. and we just saw a vessel. Another vessel came by and freaking saved them. Oh, What's that I all about? Guys. <laughs> I, they stole my glory. They stole your glory. <laughs> but uh, uh, it uh, and we just turned around. All right, looks like you got them all here. I mean, but it was it was fixing to be uh, uh, quite a, a crazy case. And we picked people up off of fishing boats and um, and uh, picked up uh, divers who whose the boat that they were coming back to drifted like a mile away. And uh, and the guy in the boat said, hey, uh, I'm missing my divers. Can you help me find them? And uh, there was lots of stuff that we did. And that was my primary legacy. Uh, Legacy tour, lots of legacy missions, but also the aerial interdiction thing, which is a, a special mission for the Coast Guard. Then I went to San Francisco, and um, the neatest thing about San Francisco, however, uh, was was I I kind of volunteered for and was happily selected to do uh, the airborne use of force thing. I, I mean. They select. They were happy to to select me because not any other pilots wanted it. it mm-hmm. was, you know, guns and Coast Guard is is definitely a thing. But I mean, there's some people who go to the Coast Guard because they don't really want to shoot. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, nevertheless, I mean, it's an armed force. You know, I, but I I've, I've met pilots who wanted nothing to do with the airborne use of force mission. And, uh, and I think they ended up retiring, you know, uh, before they had the chance to do that. But, um, uh, we were, we, we had armed dolphin helicopters that was, that were fitted with the purpose of defending and protecting, uh, the uh, sensitive shipping that would come in towards San Francisco. You know, there's there's a lot of things that come in and out of the Bay Area, and um, it was necessary at that and in the post 9/11 world to and to make sure that there was a a layer of protection uh, for that. I assume industry. some of that stuff goes down the coast to Vandenberg and other parts well, as well. It's not just necessarily military related. Um, there's military, I mean, certainly the military presence in, in the San Francisco Bay Area has mm. has diminished. I mean, I, the Coast Guard is literally like the biggest service. I mean, there's an old Air Force base or two that's no longer there. Several Navy bases that aren't there anymore, really. Used to be a sub base up in Vallejo, submarine. Right. Um, right. Yeah, it's not there anymore. 
lots of decrepit buildings. But uh, no, there's there's things that are environment. I mean, if if something were to happen, I mean, the environmental fall fallout would would be significant. You know? Right, and and these are all very necessary things that that are that I believe are worthy of our tax dollars. You know, I think people get a lot of bang for their, their buck out of the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, that, that mission has, um, it has come and gone in different places throughout the Coast Guard. And, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of uh, development and, and, and movement and reinvention uh, with the way Coast Guard. So they, the way they do things now versus the way I did that mission then, I'm sure it's become different in many ways. Um, you know, there's also the, I didn't do it, but the counter drug mission, you know, where they've shown this on TV. But um, no, the Coast Guard um, was certainly one of the apex time periods in my life where I felt very good about the service that I was providing taxpayers and uh, it's it's a feel-good mission and uh, it's it, what can I say and I loved it um, and uh, but it was time for me personally uh, to to move on from flying I had flown for 16 years by this time and I was feeling the itch to try something else and got into the Intel game I uh, did it and on the East Coast and on the West Coast. Um, um, got a pretty good clearance out of it. And uh, um, in other ways, hit another apex in my career. But uh, uh, with, with... Can the, you elaborate on that? Or is that something that's sensitive? What the Coast Guard or? does... Um, Coast Guard is involved in the Intel game. Like, like 16 different government agencies are uh, they've got their lane and and much of it is uh, revolves around um building an understanding of what's uh, of what's in the maritime domain and uh um and intel as i learned is has a key purpose it's not just to collect intel it's to warn operators and uh, that's the way i learned how to treat it and that's why i think me and the people that uh, who worked with me did fairly well at it i was promoted early to uh, i was frocked uh, to 04 now lieutenant commander but i don't think that's because of any particular talent of mine i mean i i, I they needed somebody <laughs> and uh that we're, we're losing people at the unit at the time. Oh, James, you can, you're going to manage civilians and military people now. And it was neat. And mm-hmm. I felt very honored, but uh, I don't think it was because I was smarter than too many other people or anything. Um, I wouldn't sell yourself short. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've known you for some time and you're, you're pretty smart. So I, well, I think they, I think the, uh, they knew what they were getting when they, are you on board? Well, I don't know. 
We'll see. <laughs> I get dumber every year now. Now, now that I'm retired. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I did that on the West Coast and on the East Coast, and and you know, it, the job finished um, at Sector San Francisco. Uh, kind of a return to my San Francisco experience, but from a uh, a maritime domain awareness perspective and um it was it was a good completion to Mm -hmm. what i had already done um it gave me a a broader focus of our government um Mm -hmm. uh, uh, an an understanding of, of how not only uh organizations of ill repute <laughs> operate and uh and and just how to serve at, at a different level and, and right warn operators like you know and sometimes you know other government agencies do things that other government agencies don't know you know and that, that's mm-hmm. that's a part of it um it's and, very segmented, right? Right. Uh, this is what we found out in nine eleven. You know that uh, there's dove piping of information. You know, and right. Uh, it's impossible. I mean, our government is so large. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in many times in necessary ways. But um, I learned. <laughs> I, I reinforced why I don't really believe in government conspiracy theories because it seems to me <laughs> that um, the things that typically went wrong in the government were either a result of uh, people being focused on the wrong things or organizations not talking to each other or the, basically the left hand not knowing what the right is doing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, uh, I, I finished on, on really positive terms on, on, on my own accord, 22 years. Um, or to be specific, twenty-one years and eleven months. I think I'll count. I'll count that as twenty-two. Twenty-two, yeah. And uh, and then moved on to what I'd been preparing for over the past year of uh, of my coasty experience, which was to get back into aviation because uh, I never really stopped. I kept flying for things like Civil Air Patrol, and um, I was an instructor on the out of San Carlos. Uh, I flew teenage students who are trying to get their ratings, you know, on the, you know, all this is during the end. I worked seven day, seven day weeks, work weeks on mm-hmm. my, during my last couple of years and got a lot of fixed wing time and, uh, flew, ended up flying jets for a little while. And, and then it came to an abrupt stop, stop. So how did it come to an abrupt stop? Well, it's another story. <laughs> um, I I set it up in a way that I was very proud of. I uh, I had transitioned to the airlines with no break in employment. I was with a company by the name of GoJet, which treated me very well, as a matter of fact. And what they would allow military transitioners to do is... Uh, sign in with them and start your seniority 
six months prior to getting out of the military. So by the time, it was a regional uh, airline. So by the time I actually went to start my training, I had six months of seniority. I, I had no, uh, maybe one month of reserve time. That's when you're waiting and twiddling your thumbs to, to go fly. I mean, I went straight right. into the line, uh, so to speak, flying with uh, as a first pilot. But uh, it was while I was there that uh, something that had haunted me over the last several years um, that I kind of ignored started to get the, the best of me. I, when I was 41, 42, I, there was this, I, I was getting uh, peas on a fork, eating dinner. And it was kind of shaky. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. This is, I mean, for around 40 years old. My wife was kind of concerned about it. She said, you need to go to a neurologist. You need to talk about that and see what's going on. And I did that. Went to a neurologist. She said, well, I don't think it's Parkinson's, but keep a look at it and, uh, you know, see how th things progress. I think you've got essential tremors. Oh, that made sense. That all sorts of family members who have essential tremors. No big deal. I'll keep flying on the side. Mm-hmm. And so here I was, uh, three, four months into my uh, first pilot career in a regional airline, and it was getting harder to write down clearances fast enough. Mm. My right hand was kind of limited, and it was messy. It was starting to become frustrating. And I thought, well, it couldn't be Parkinson's. I mean, I... Um, I went to a neurologist four years, five years prior, said, nah, don't worry about it. I keep looking. I went mm -hmm. to a neurologist just before I got my most recent aeromedical light surgeon certification. And I'd been seeing flight surgeons. They all knew about it. And I thought, prudently enough, uh, before I go to the airlines, I want to make sure that this essential tremor thing isn't something more severe. So there right. I was thinking I was squared away and it got worse. I mean, I was to the mm. point where I was not using a mouse with my right hand. I was using a mouse with my left hand. I'm, I'm right-handed. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I knew something was wrong. This was spring of 2020 and uh, COVID started happening in the States. Right, right. So I thought, here I have a hand that I know my control touch is compromised or something. I don't know what's going on. To my, to my knowledge, I just got essential tremors and it's being more of a pain in the ass. I literally thought mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And COVID comes along and I thought, man, this is probably not the second career track that's gonna be prudent for me. So I gracefully withdrew um, and I, Got another appointment to the neurologist. Long story short, went to them. They took an exam of me and they said, ah, yeah, <laughs> you got Parkinson's. Mm. And uh, I knew very little of it. I didn't even know that Michael J. Fox had it. I knew he, I knew mm -hmm. he was effed up from something. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I said, well, how long do I have? And uh, 
my wife was in the room. She was in tears and told me how much she loved me. And, um, the neurologist says, oh, you got plenty of years to live. That's not anything to worry about. It's just going to be mm -hmm. a pain in the ass while, while you're getting there. Right. And uh, uh, so began my post-flight career, post-military career uh, journey in, in dealing with Parkinson's. And I've been extremely lucky in that I've got a slow roller um, that mm -hmm. could end tomorrow. But um, uh, I haven't flown since. Um, uh, and uh, and it's not that I can't. I, I still possibly could. But I haven't committed the time and the resources to going through the FAA waiver process to still be able to fly with it. Um, and... So, uh, is it possible that I could fly commercial? I guess it is, technically. Um, it just seems like it's an imprudent investment. And, in, uh, you know, when, when it can all get worse, you know, right. next month. Um, Have you fl uh, flown personally? Uh, no. Well... I'm thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> One thing I haven't done, I've done jets, I've done Cessnas, I've done, you know, high wing, low wing, fixed wing type stuff. I've done multiple helicopters. Uh, you know, I've got still under 4,000 hours, uh, you know, but I've done a, a fair amount of flying. I haven't done much with gliders. I've had maybe two or three, no, just two glider events and, that's neat. Mm -hmm. um, it's the equivalent of sailing, right? You know, but in an airplane, and if you've ever been in one, it's like silent. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. So I might, as soon as I get some time, I've been fairly invested in a, in a few things, but that's I think the flight direction I might go yet. We'll see, but. Uh, I mean, it's either that or hot air balloon for me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so following that diagnosis and your abrupt flight stoppage, that segued into what you're doing now with voting. Can you elaborate a little on that? I belong to two different voting advocacy groups, and one is called Veterans for All Voters. Uh, the second organization that I volunteer and advocate for or with is Upvote Virginia. Um, both of these organizations are advocacy organizations for ranked choice voting, something that I believe is critical to abating the hyperpolarization that exists right. amongst our politics. Um, I think it's a significant risk for us to continue uh, with the polarization that exists in the United States. And I think it, I, I'm deeply concerned about where mm -hmm. it's going. You know, and I remain as nonpartisan as I possibly can because I believe this is, well, 
the, the, the data has shown that it's good for both teams. Mm-hmm. Um, in short, I should probably explain what ranked choice voting is because, I mean, a lot of people still haven't heard about it. Right. Ranked choice voting is a an electoral innovation that requires a true majority win by any given candidate who runs. True majority. They got to win with over 50%. It provides more power to voters in that they get to choose by ranked choice who they most prefer. And if someone that they vote for first, let's say they, they vote for a, um, someone who's on the margins in some way, you know, not very popular and probably not a good chance of them winning. Mm-hmm. Well, the least vote getter in any given election iteration gets removed. And those votes, your second uh, preference, for example, then go to their second and third preferences and whatnot. So the least vote getter gets eliminated. It's like it, it comes in, it's an iterative process. Right. And those votes, they don't disappear. They're not wasted. Those mm-hmm. votes live on in that they go to the second and third preferences of the voters and how they chose. So the winner, typically, is someone who has their number one primary votes, but also the second and tertiary votes of someone of, of the candidates who got knocked out of the process because they didn't have enough votes to get farther along. Um, but most importantly about ranked choice voting is it's the only thing that's on the table right now that structurally changes things so that it re-incentivizes our elected officials. That's mm-hmm. probably the most important thing about it. It gives right. voters more power to get something that they want. Mm-hmm. And the people who win don't win with a plurality anymore. I mean, because we've got situations where people win. If there's a lot of people in that particular election, right? We, even in local elections, let's say five, five people are running. You get people winning with like 20, 30%. Right. When someone wins with 20 or 30%, they don't have to serve the overall populace. They get to mm-hmm. serve a faction, right? They get to serve a smaller proportion because that's who they know will keep them in power, in the seat. Mm-hmm. Now, there's good people who serve in, in the government, but they have these incentivizations that, that you know, if they want to get reelected, they have to do it a certain way they you know they're right. for one they're fundraisers almost no all of them they gotta be fundraisers more than anything else but that's neither here nor there it re-incentivizes them when they have to appeal to a broader span of the populace a broader span of the electorate that 
and they win with great, have to win with greater than 50%, they truly, at that point, have a voter mandate and, and, and have the assurance that they have most, uh, the majority of the voter. And this changes everything. Uh, and we've seen it in, uh, in places that utilize ranked choice voting, of which there's like 60 different jurisdictions. Um, the win that we've uh, experienced recently here in Virginia is Arlington County yeah. Board of, uh, yeah, the County um, Board of Supervisors. Uh, Arlington just decided to, they had, they'd done a test, a pilot run of it, but they also just as of this week voted in unanimously to go rank choice voting for their county board of supervisors. This is a significant win to rank choice voting in Virginia, but Virginia has been using it, both the red team and now the blue. Um, mm -hmm. When um, It's ironic because, I mean, it depends on who's in power, right? right. Nevada is has been predominantly a blue state recently, right? They're fighting mm -hmm. against it hard. Those are Democrats who don't want it. Right. 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 Yeah. A lot of people think, oh, that's a progressive thing. Yeah. Democrats are like, no, they don't necessarily <laughs> want to change the recipe for how they get voted in. I mean, right. you can't blame them. I mean, th there's an, an entire sub industry built on that. Yes. Of finding dirt consultants who have mastered how to find how messed up a person has been in their past. Right. Right. <laughs> they have no right. incentive of, of going along with this process. Glenn Youngkin, the current governor of Virginia, was selected by his caucus via ranked choice voting. Mm. I'm talking about red states now. Okay. So mm -hmm. Virginia is a purple state. So, but a lot of Republicans don't realize that he was selected via RCV. The state of Utah has like 24 cities ranked choice voting for their city councils and, and, and city positions. These are red states. Alaska is the model for ranked choice voting. We call it final five or final four. They want a final four. And that's open primaries. Anyone can vote for, and anyone can run in the primary. But the top four, top five, get selected to go to the general and that general is ranked choice voting and there was some consternation on the alaska vote because sarah palin did not win mm -hmm. uh, what what ranked choice voting advertises the promise of ranked choice voting is perhaps most importantly it it, it favors uh more moderate candidates who who and 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 doesn't favor fringe candidates or the ones on the margins um which is a democracy essentially that's what that's the type of uh, foundation that i think we need right well it, uh, part of the premise and the entire question before you think before you think should i support ranked choice voting is how much do you appreciate majority wins? Right. Because right? we don't necessarily have majority wins. And we have 
the plurality system right now. And it, okay. it's not people winning with 50-something percent every time or greater. Um, it seems to me that the democratic way with a lowercase d of, uh, of continuing this democratic experiment uh, for well beyond 200 plus years is is to continue with that idea that that needs to be now the plurality system you know how we got this was simply that's what the british were doing you know that's that's how we adopted it It, and it was relatively easy to to utilize um the australians by the way were very smart they went ranked choice voting during world war one they have been rcv for over a hundred years there's mm-hmm. a lot of data to pull out of different countries who are RC, who are ranked choice voting or various equivalents. Ireland, um, uh, you know, I think there's, they use it in certain uh, uh, things in Canada. Not certainly not for everything, but they use it for some things up there, as I understand it. But um, yeah, Australia, long. I mean, it, you can't you can't go anywhere without running into a ranked choice voting ballot. It's part of their psyche there, I guess. But um, but part of the promise, as I was trying, just trying to say, is that it, it favors, I, I shouldn't even say moderates. I should say those who glean the majority of support for their area. Well, it just so happens to be that most Americans, it seems to me, are are more centrist and more moderate than what comes across on the news. You know, I, I consider myself a centrist. I, I think you do too. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I don't have a party. Right. I, I, I don't have a political home. There's no, yeah. I, I don't feel comfortable with some of the things on the blue side and some of the, and I, I grew up a Republican, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not there anymore, but I'm not with the blue right. side. It's there's got to be something else, you know. And as much as I think uh, third parties are relevant right. and important, they don't have any chance because of the duopoly. Right. The duopoly of two particular parties who don't let anyone else in. Ranked choice voting gives them an opportunity to get on the ballot where in in ways that have not been seen in the past. So it, it more or less levels the playing field and it also puts the power back into the voters. And it gives more power to voters. Um, yes. I mean, we, we have power now as, as voters, you know, depending on, I mean, that kind of depends on what state you're in and, you know, some of those dynamics, but uh, to truly be able to vote for who your heart and mind are attracted to uh, with the safety of knowing that you're not wasting your vote because you've got a second, a third, a fourth, or however many candidates there are, or, or you don't have to vote for, and here's another thing a lot of people, you don't have to vote for someone you don't like. If you don't right. want to put two preferences, three preferences in, you can do that. Then don't, if you just right. write one in, you know, you can do that too. But mm-hmm. 
you've got a backup for if your candidate gets eliminated due to the iterative pro the, the the counting process then you've got like as for like if you were a, a pro very progressive democrat for example during uh, the 2016 election and you wanted to vote for let's say Bernie Sanders was on the ballot. You wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders, but you thought, oh, he might not make it. You could put Clinton in as your secondary. Or if you're right. on if you're on the red team, you could vote like like we had here in Virginia, you could have voted for one of the other candidates other than Glenn Youngkin and then voted Glenn Youngkin as your second with the safety net mm -hmm. of realizing that if you're if your person gets eliminated due to the counting process you still got that backup that you know because a lot of people have to we don't vote for who we want anymore we vote for the least worst right right that's been the resounding at least the last couple election cycles that's been yeah. the resounding thing you know i i gotta imagine too that corporate interests and special lobby groups and everything aren't very fond of this corporate interest groups well, okay. Here's one thing that we don't exactly know. We don't know precisely how it will change the investment value mm -hmm. or the dollar value of a politician. But we know it will probably change. Okay, so if you have to appeal more to the populace than you do special interest groups, it changes your investment value. What what they would what they would have to. It doesn't take money out of politics, but right. it changes what they would probably have to do to influence. And I, I think and it, how they diversify. It makes sure. it more expensive uh, to buy a politician. Mm -hmm. I think, um, mm -hmm. but you know, this is this is all speculation. I mean, we we don't know exactly what that would be. We know it's horrible right now. And we know that politicians make decisions so often based on the special interest or the, the, the faction, given the plurality system that we have. I mean, some people get voted in 30% of the electorate and a ton of special interest money. Who are they beholden to? They're not beholden right. to the, the greater majority to get re-voted in. Right. So you are, I mean you're perceptive in, in talking about how they wouldn't like it. I mean, they wouldn't like necessarily how it changes the output that they would have to attempt to do, but we don't mm -hmm. know exactly yet. I mean, it, it doesn't take money out of politics. It doesn't fix that. Yeah. I, I can't imagine it would. I, I see it as being, you know, begrudgingly synonymous with with politics unfortunately yeah. but it, it's also that's just kind of the way of the world all things considered what's what's the feedback been to this it depends on the type of place that you live um mm -hmm. there are i i've i've had more positive feedback from the blue side around here um and many Republicans, as a result of certain politicians who have said bad things, I mean, Sarah Palin lost, not just because of ranked choice voting, but partly because of ranked choice voting, I believe. 
um, because it doesn't favor um, candidates who are on the margins or have. <laughs> well, we can go into that later, but uh, right. <laughs> but uh, the red team here in Virginia, uh, the the Republican Party at large in Virginia. Uh, still uses it. They used it for several congressional districts to, to pick who they wanted to put forward. They used it for the governor and uh, and the lieutenant governor and, and all those things. So the Republicans like it for specific purposes. Um, and the Democrats have been more scared of it, except for, of course, Arlington. If it's a progressive uh, town, uh, Charlottesville, uh, college town, progressive town, uh, they are uh, considering it. I don't know where they stand, but the, I, there's some movement there. Um, and Arlington is the recent big win, and the organizations that I belong to have been talking with them and trying to get it going for the last several years. Uh, uh, Norfolk, uh, it's it, Norfolk's actually a it's a military town largely. Um, it's uh, I get a lot of positive reception, but uh, I also get a lot of people who aren't personally invested enough to want to do anything about it. And the city council here, uh, we know of one of them who is an RCV fan. As a matter of fact, the the mayor uh, wrote a white paper on ranked choice voting coming out. Mm. He was very neutral about it, but he said mildly that he supported it um it was very neutral in tone but neutral positive so but the the leadership of of norfolk and the rest of hampton roads tends to be fairly conservative as far as social policy or i shouldn't say social policy that's i think i misspoke there it has more to do with um um just a lot of policy in general. They're they're not. They, they don't want. I don't sense the flavor that they want to be the first ones to go with this. They'd like to right. get used somewhere else first. Mm-hmm. You know, um, which Arlington has done. So you know, maybe that'll move some other entities. You know, it's it's kind of a statewide fight for us here. You know, I was riding up to Arlington. You know, and we. We have several, I mean, League of Women Voters is as, as a part of the coalition. There's other groups that uh, are fans and trying to get it across the, the board. Uh, I get it. That was my other question. Like, what sort of, like, um, groups are, are in favor of it? Like, um, civic positive groups? Um, um there's, well, there's the entities that are using it. Uh, um, we'll start with that. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I'd have to bring it up, but uh, if you go on fairvote.org, um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, they've got a map of everyone who's got it. Um, there's, both Portland's have voted it in. The state of Maine was the first state to fully use it. Um, 
and that stopped their plurality voting because people were getting voted in at 30, 20%. You know, the more people, the more the vote gets split up. So it was getting split up right. for the last 15, 20 odd years there. So they finally got people who were voted in as a majority up in Maine. Um, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, depending on the ballot initiative, Nevada um, may go ranked choice voting for statewide. Um, but that depends on this. They, they vote twice for ballot initiatives. You know, on California, and you vote once for the for the bullet train back in the day. I think I, I actually right. had to vote for that thing, that expensive, <laughs> that expensive craziness. But um, uh, no, Nevadans vote twice. So we got to see what happens with them. Hawaii uses it for their special election. And here's another thing. I mean, because a lot of people on the red team are seem to be more wary of ranked choice voting. And of course, uh, the presidential candidate du jour for that side uh, rails against it and doesn't like it at all. Uh, but um, the six of the southern states from uh, Georgia to uh, not quite Texas and to Mississippi. Uh, six of those states, um, deep red states, are all using ranked choice voting for military and overseas ballots. Mm. Which is a, a, the 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 rationale for military voters for people on active duty to use ranked choice voting is it's simply elegant. Uh, it, mm -hmm. If you, let's say you vote on a conventional ballot and you're overseas, you know, it took a while. They had to print the ballots early. They uh, took a while to get out to you vote and it goes back. What if something changes on that ballot? What if scandal right. and someone drops off the ballot? What if, um, you know, this happened in the not too distant future where names dropped off the ballot? Those are wasted votes. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there's not enough time to get ballots printed, get sent out and bring them back. It, it, it just it doesn't happen. So to have a second and a third rank on your ballot is the perfect solution for overseas. And it's the State Department people. It's military. It's, um, you know, citizens who are overseas working for whatever. But um, it's the elegant solution for that. And more military votes would get counted uh, where they rank choice voting. And those states figured it out. Well, and it would eliminate a lot of questions as well once the candidate came to office, right? I mean, there'd be a lot of, if the majority is winning, right? Mm -hmm. If the majority vote wins, then there would be less questions about the voting process questions about would there or would there not be um it depends on how tethered you are to the idea that our voting is riddled with fraud um right right so if you believe that our voting system is corrupted that it's uh riddled with uh dark actors who uh compromise ballots left and right um then you're probably not going to trust something that's slightly more complex, but provides better governance. Um, 
it's, uh, I mean, I have talked to lots of poll workers in I, I, states. It is apparent to me that our, our states have an acute interest in the integrity of their elections. And I'm fairly certain that they go, I mean, every single state that was in question during the last election went through significant exercises to and to assure that it wasn't fraudulent. And so I trust our election system. Uh, I know that's come into be challenged as of late, but uh, I trust it as of now uh, and have. And if you trust our election system, you'll you'll probably trust ranked choice voting, unless unless you're. I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's it's fun <laughs> if you if you think there's something about the machine that changes, you know, the the votes or something like that, if you mm-hmm. believe that, then you're more likely to believe that ranked choice voting is fraught with fraud because it's they've gotten they counted a special way or something like that. And um, yeah, there's a tabulation process which is slightly comp it's more complex, but I mean you can do it without a, a tabulation machine. You can do it old school. I mean mm-hmm. I mean, do we want to do it old school now? Do we want to hand count ballots now? I mean, with, I mean, states and nationwide, we've got a gajillion of these things. I mean, no one wants to hand count them now, and it wouldn't be hand counted. But you could with ranked choice voting. There's a paper Mm -hmm. trail, right? Right. So if if you thought there was fraud, you could collect all the ballots and examine them just like we did for Bush versus Gore back in the day, and. and investigate it for fraud if you if you're concerned mm-hmm. about that. Um, so, yeah. What's the media response been to this? Mixed. Um, yes. It. Um, I. Th- there's. There's been. It also depends on where they get their information. Like op eds mm-hmm. are, all over the freaking place. I mean. Uh, there's op-eds. There was an op-ed that was published in our local paper in Hampton. Uh, no, this, sorry, in, in um, a D.C. area newspaper that was published by a guy who was living in Oklahoma City. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's that kind of stuff that happens. He was anti. Right. You know, you, you know, they, and they every. Every anti-RCV opinion piece that I see is driven by partisan orientation. I mean, it's 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 someone who believes in one side or the other so significantly that they they're not interested in a true fifty percent vote. They'd rather get a twenty or thirty percent plurality win to retain power. And that's really mm-hmm. what it boils down to. The people who right. distrust ranked choice voting more than anything else. There's, that's, I believe the core motivation. If you can win with 30%, why risk it to have to earn 50 plus? Mm-hmm. And 
Um, now, there are, as far as media outlets, to get back to that question, you, there have, um, there have been people on the right who are positive of it. Um, they're a bit fewer, but there definitely are some who have been vociferous about uh, ranked choice voting, being in a, uh, helping maintain our democracy. Um, there's probably more progressives because, well, let's face it, it's, it's a new thing. So who likes new things? Progressives. Um, so that there's been more voice, but they aren't necessarily Democrats. They're, um, you know, it's, uh, but there's plenty on the blue team that don't like it. And I can point mm -hmm. to, it. I mean, DC initiated a lawsuit against the, the people who were trying to propagate. I mean, uh, it's the blue team there all the, in DC. That's they dominate politics there. They, right. they don't want it because they don't want to change mm -hmm. the recipe. But um, as far as um, right wing media, the the Heritage Foundation does not like it. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, well, I think I've got one of the uh, it's a it's a well known right leaning organization that just they just wrote um, a paper a full paper about it in support of ranked choice voting it's um oh, I'll think of it in a little bit um, uh, there's a lot of journalists who write positively about RCV uh, but I don't have I'm not prepared uh, for that question honestly I, I, <laughs> I there's there's been plenty of positive and plenty of negative and generally the negative is oriented towards um, uh, wanting one side to win or the other uh, it's 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 been partisan efforts that have removed it from a couple of cities uh, in the past ohio mm -hmm. this this gets pretty obscure, but Ohio had it back like in the twenties and thirties. Mm. I mean, mm -hmm. ranked choice voting has been around in one way or another in a lot of different places. Ohio had it. And, uh, there were people of color getting offices and stuff like that. And for one reason or another, there's, you can, you can find this, there's a, there's a, analytical report about it that talks about the history of Ohio but um, some people didn't like the results that they were getting in Ohio and they got rid of it um, I guess that was that was also you just segued into my next question how are demographics specifically reacting to this is there a specific demographic over the other I know now in the current Actually, well, it has been for the last probably 20, 20 plus years, we've seen more women in power, right. more people of color in power. Um, do you see... Uh, Cato Institute. The Cato Institute okay. has written positively <laughs> about ranked choice voting. Okay. There you go. I knew I'd get it in a second. Um, as far as demographics, um, the best illustration of how RCV has affected... Uh, women 
candidates is the Bay Area of, of California, where multiple mm -hmm. cities, San Francisco, Berkeley, a couple of others, are using ranked choice voting. San Francisco has been using it for a while. Um, the benefit, because, because your vote is not wasted, right? Because you can vote for who you want and have a secondary. People mm -hmm. who, let's say you're a voter who, who feels that a woman needs to get, a woman needs to get elected in your town. All right, for whatever, or maybe, maybe you're, you know, whether or not you're a feminist or whatever. Okay, you want to vote for a woman, um, or the woman, women are just better there, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's not like you can. We we have okay. We have seen. Let me put it this way: We have seen that those who are inclined to vote for a particular demographic of whatever kind generally put that same demogra demographic as their second or third choice. So mm -hmm. you have instead of instead of one, you end up um, with. Um, female candidates not dis detracting from other female candidates, right? So, in in with a plurality vote, you've there's often an inclination for multiple uh, of one demographic not running because oh you'll you know if there, if there's a gal who wants to run or if there's already a lady who's running, right? You don't take away right. from them and split the vote. There's no vote splitting with ranked choice voting. So you can they can be voted one and two or vice versa. It doesn't take away from the other person. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, because because of the whole vote splitting phenomenon with with plurality, um, it opens up the floodgates of you being able to vote for who you really want. And that's why women as well as other demographics, which I can point you to a report on fair vote. There's, they have an analysis team in fair vote that picks all this stuff apart. Um, there's women and people of color have done better with ranked choice voting. They, they've come closer to the picture of what America actually looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't favor, it, of course it would be a useless system if it favored one demographic over another it doesn't do that absolutely but if it it more closely aligns with the demographic that exists where you live you know mm -hmm. or where it's being utilized so i hope i said that delicately enough i mean <laughs> you did uh, but, so if you were given a a crystal ball for this next election oh cycle, god dude what what do we see what what do you see? What I obviously you can't see the future, but you mean our our yeah. our next federal election with Trump yes. and Biden? Our next yes. <laughs> I don't know, man. I yeah. It's Trump's polling well. I'm not a mm -hmm. I'm not a poll expert. Um, I I think it's best if. 
I maintain my nonpartisan <laughs> orientation. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, there's things about both sides. I'll reiterate that that frustrate me, and mm -hmm. it seems to me that a systematic or structural uh, augmentation to what we currently have is the only thing that will build a coalition of the same. Because let's say mm -hmm. we we only need like five to ten states that vote people in via ranked choice voting. If we can get ten states like Alaska, like Maine, that build a coalition of the not uber partisan, then we can get people who know how to build consensus, who mm -hmm. build coalitions, who are a coalition of the same, who know how to compromise. I mean, no one compromises anymore, right? right? right. So, I mean, who do I think is going to win? I don't know. I'm... I'm not I'm not enthusiastic. I, I don't really I don't publicly endorse anyone. Um mm -hmm. but uh um I think the results of either one have are are fraught with you know it, it, Bill Maher says <laughs> perfect is not <laughs> on the table. Right. Right. Um right. And uh I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned and that's, I, I started to get concerned a couple of years ago. Uh, I've been concerned for a while. I mean, mm -hmm. but, uh, I, those of us who belong to veterans for all voters, you know, it, I encourage anyone to look up, you know, if you've served or if you appreciate people who have served, look up veterans for all voters. And, uh, it's, got no black no dark money it's mm -hmm. got uh it's a very transparent organization and it's made up of veterans who simply want to continue the democratic experiment with a lowercase d and mm -hmm. we believe that it's the next iteration of voting innovation back during the turn of the century they started using these things called primaries, right? Because prior to that, it was party bosses, literally, who in the smoke-filled right. rooms of, of wherever they were meeting would decide. Party bosses would decide who would go forward. And then they mm -hmm. came out with this dangerous idea called primaries, where voters got to basically select who was going to go forward for the general. <laughs> that all happened over the span of 30, 40 years, starting around just prior to the turn of the century. It was an experiment of democracy. And here mm -hmm. we got it all, everywhere. Um, it took a while. But uh, right. I mean, don't get me started on closed primaries. But, <laughs> but uh, that's another part of the platform that we talk about. But uh, we won't go there. Um, it. So how how are you getting the word out? I what's what your, I have what been, sort of initiatives? The, the most efficient thing that I believe is 
I can do is talk to organizations. So mm -hmm. I've been to Rotaries. I've been to uh, Elks Lodge hasn't let me in. There's a lot. There's who else have I talked to? Um, Lions Club hasn't let me in either. But there's been ro uh, several Rotaries. There's been um, uh, right now we're we're focusing more on civic leagues. Uh, our mm -hmm. our cities around here have civic leagues that uh, that are civic minded people. They they get a brief from the the local the whatever cops are working the beat in their area town and um, and it's it's an opportunity to talk about civic minded things. And so we've talked to them. I've talked to like twenty organizations and given a lot of presentations. Uh, it's uh, uh, I, I've gotten enough you know a couple hundred people to sign up for anything from volunteering to awareness and but it's slow going man i mean i never i never dreamt i'd be doing stuff like this i mean it was mm -hmm. there's a conservative was a conservative sorry uh, by the name of charles krauthammer you remember that guy he was on fox news way back yes, when vaguely he yeah. was, he was mm -hmm. i think he was like a paraplegic or something like that he was bound to a right. wheelchair from i think a uh, a college diving accident or something like that he was a bona fide um republican and and very mm -hmm. and did the the news circuit quite a bit and he said something that makes a lot of sense to me he said i'd much rather be talking about wine and about art, and about the play, and about the movies, and about, you know, for me, whatever adventure I'm going to go on, you know, my, my bike trip, or or kayaking, and stuff like that. That's me, not, that's not him. But if the <laughs> politics aren't right, none of that stuff gets to happen. Right. Right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he was a conservative. I grew up very conservative. I, mm -hmm. There's lots of conservatives that I I still respect, in one way or another. I don't respect all the Democrats either, <laughs> but I'm not a re I'm not a registered Democrat. I'm not a registered Republican. Uh, the only thing there's, I'd like to echo this one historian that I listen to. Um, I have to. I have to remember his name. There's <laughs> this historian I listen to. He's been on several podcasts around, but he's a guy from Oregon, as a matter of fact. He he says that uh, politically, I'm from Mars, and uh, he used to. He it's like he has no venue anymore because he used to talk in the center, and right he he, he couldn't say anything without half of the people who listen to him getting pissed off. You know? Sure. Um, I'll remember his name in a, in a second, just like I did the other thing. But I don't know. I'm a, I'm afraid to opine on next November because I'm, I'm deeply concerned about it. But uh, I think uh, that uh, the American people will, do something that is uh, going to make history <laughs> one way or yeah, another. Yeah, absolutely. One way or the other, yes. I, I still have to believe that at the heart of the American um, individual is 
the will to continue this experiment. Well, and I, I really believe that's the case. I, mm-hmm. I, matter of fact, when I talk to people who, you know, looking at me like they distrust me or they think I'm a, an operator. I mean, I was on, I was on with, uh, this didn't happen today, but I was, I was on a small group talking to our state senator just earlier today, talking about ranked mm-hmm. choice voting just for a minute. And, uh, I'm the, I was the only white guy, <laughs> especially the only white guy <laughs> with a beard, you know, looking like I just came in from mm-hmm. the hunt or something like that. I, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I sense they don't always trust me, you know, because of the way right. I look. But I go to the red side, right? And I talk about something new, right? And they don't trust me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, I, I get it from all sides. Um, so, you know, um, but there's Republicans who like it in, in, in this state. And the, the one of the former governors, He's a fan. He's touring around from time to time talking about ranked choice voting. Um, but, uh, oh, here's what I was going to say. I almost forgot. And this is one of the things that I say to people who who might distrust me or or we've got nuanced differentiation of, of opinion, which is damn near everyone. But I, I like to say this, that, you know what, I think that you and I, have largely the same values. I think that you and I value the same things. I think perhaps we get different information sources. Right. But you and I value the same things when it comes to fairness, mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, f- fiscal responsibility, when it comes to a, a cogent uh border policy that no side has mm-hmm. presented us with. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I really do believe that the un, un, underneath this veneer of misinformation in the United States that we've got people who still largely agree uh, on, on most things, but we're getting different information which has been exacerbated by freaking facebook and all that stuff yes yes are you even on facebook anymore you know i get on facebook rarely it's mainly just to see if somebody has a birthday and wish them a happy birthday i think i've got like 50 something unanswered messages from various people so my apologies to those people but i like the the ease of instagram just the quick I see the picture, I like the picture, I don't like it, and I move on sort of yeah. thing versus the continuing saga that's on Facebook. I had to leave it. But that's just me personally. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm there for our our group um, that that does ranked choice voting here in Hampton Roads. <laughs> but uh, I, I, and I used to, you know, as I'm sure you remember, you know, you and I were friended up, or still are, I'm sure, but uh, I... I used to be pretty creative with it. I came up with a lot of material that I thought was more than just taking pictures of what I was eating or announcing that I was going to the gym. <laughs> right. Or, <laughs> you know. Um and I and I miss 
the early parts of, of Facebook. Remember when Facebook was new and, you know, and you, it was all of our classmates were getting together for the first time in years. I mean, oh, that, yeah. was a, it was that was a fun adventure. But uh, then people started to get political opinions. <laughs> and then the algorithms came yeah. and yeah, it just became really, it's, yeah. I just, I, I think it's a net negative to everything that we got going on. And I don't trust the power of people who have such a massive platform. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe that makes me a little bit kooky nowadays. That makes me an old fart or something. <laughs> well, at this point, generally in the podcast, I'd like to uh, do a lightning round. Does this involve drinking? <laughs> no. Sorry. I, I, you know, I mean, a cup of coffee maybe, <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> so this is a, <laughs> so I've been monkeying around with chat GPT and yeah. AI and, you know, various incarnations. And so I, a few minutes before we came on, I had the bot ch- uh, generate five wacky questions to ask oh, me. So God. I'm going to run you through those right now. That's interesting. <laughs> So, number one, if animals could talk, which one do you think would be the most sarcastic and what would they say? <laughs> oh, <laughs> who would be the court jester? Um, the animal kingdom. Probably. Oh. Well, it wouldn't be the sloth. The sloth would be sarcastic. That might be my answer, but they're they're too slow to be that witty. But when they come up with answers, I think it would be pretty uh, sarcastic half the time. Um, see, I could I could see them being witty though because they sit around all day yeah. just kind of more or less observing, right? Yeah, I might I might have to settle <laughs> on that answer. It might be the sloth, <laughs> okay. but I'm also tempted to say the macaque. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Just trying to think of obscure uh, animals that, uh, that uh, you know, come out of left field, perhaps. Shout out to the macaques. <laughs> All right. Number two, if your life had a theme song, what genre would it be um, and why? Uh, it would be... A variation of eighties, uh, um, genre. Um, it would a little hip hop, heavy metal, yeah, uh, jazz. It wouldn't be heavy metal. It wouldn't be jazz. It wouldn't be country western. Uh, I've I've stayed within the lanes of of popular culture on on most of my music. I I'm not as as bold as you on music because you i know you like some obscure stuff obscure to me but right uh and you, what was that one that used to wear the t-shirts to this band i think it was local or something what, what was the name of i have so many different band t-shirts yeah. so you're more I, experimental I you're, you're an expert <laughs> you like you like i shouldn't say obscure that comes with a negative connotation i should say um. 
can I say? Obscure is fine. Obscure is fine. Yeah, I don't see any negativity in that. Um, Let me see. Wouldn't be bluegrass. I think it would be... I think the closest thing would probably be... If there's a mix between pop and classic rock, who does that? Who's a who's a mixture between pop and classic rock? There's got to be an artist who. I mean, you could go back to the '60s and '70s for yeah. that, right? I mean, you've got like obviously the Beatles, you know. Yeah. You've got the Kinks, maybe the Rolling yeah. Stones, that kind of. I like me some Rolling you know, Stones. Mix. Um, incidentally, on drums, I've been learning uh, most recently a clear uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival song. I've, I've got. Nice. Uh, I can I can pretty much play that at like ninety percent level. I'm just I'm just getting to the place with my drumming where I can start to approach <laughs> some of the old songs that I really liked. Um, Sweet Home Alabama, you know, I lived there for five years. It's 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 a song I appreciate. So I play a Leonard Skinner song. Um, so I'm I'm somewhere between pop, you know, the likes of pop. Such as Depeche Mode, which I know you're a, you're a fan of, and Simple Minds. I mm-hmm. still love Simple Minds. Uh, I can't. I, I'm not. There's very few songs that are approachable by Simple Minds on the drums. Mel Gaynor uh, is far more coordinated than me, <laughs> and and <laughs> uh, and there's some complexity that uh, I can't quite get to yet. Um, we're working on it. Um, Nice, but uh, I practice almost daily. Uh, I I, nice. I play a lot. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do much with it. This is a big segue from your original question, but uh, we're, we're <laughs> making okay. an interesting conversation. I think <laughs> it's a lightning round. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, so somewhere between pop and classic rock, I'm I'm a merger of those. Okay. Number three, if you could have dinner with any fictional character, who would fictional it be? Character. And what's on the menu? And what's on the menu? There are some, okay. Hanuman. Hanuman's the Indian monkey god. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's on the menu? What's on the menu? Lamb shank. <laughs> <laughs> Lamb shake and I'm sure plenty of fruit. Okay. What else is a, a, a monkey god going to eat? They're going to eat fruit. Right. It's true. But lamb shank, you know, you got me there. <laughs> Inside joke. Inside joke. That's your, uh, that's your handle. That's right. That's a story for another time. <laughs> All right, if you could swap lives with a celebrity for a day, who would it be, and how would you make the most of their day? Oh, interesting. Celebrity. Gosh, I I, I revere so few of them. Um, at one time, I might have said Kevin Spacey, but uh, then he fell into... All that stuff All that happened, stuff. right? <laughs> but, uh, well, it wouldn't be 
Kardashians. Uh, it wouldn't be Paris Hilton. Really? Not a big fan of the, the Kardashians, uh, are you, James? <laughs> um, God. You know, it would probably be a musician. It would probably be someone like uh, a celebrity. Does Stephen Hawking count as a celebrity? Does it, Does William deGrasse yeah, Tyson? I think so. Well, yeah. Hawking's no longer. He is a celebrity. Yeah. Yep. I would have to say, if I can pick Stephen Hawking, if he's still around, isn't he? I think he's still around. Did he? No, Hawking's no, yeah, no longer it was just around. A, that but... was just a few years ago. But if I had to be a living celebrity, I'd probably pick Neil deGrasse Tyson. I love the guy. Okay. Um, and how would I use his day? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think he uses his days pretty well, which is why I like him. Um <laughs> He's he's not only a social media presence, but he's uh, a presence in respected institutions and uh, governmental uh, influence there. And um, I don't think I would change anything, which is why I respect him. Okay, so you essentially there's a meme of him sleeping on the subway, by the way. Oh, so is it real? <laughs> that would have to be part of the day. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if any is so it's a picture. Yeah, it's a picture. Oh, I wonder if anyone's used Tin Eye to check it out, see if it's legit. I don't. I haven't seen it. <laughs> okay. Lastly, if you were a superhero with a unique but slightly inconvenient power, what would it be, <laughs> and what would you do with it? Uh, to see into the future um, would be my superhero power and what would i do with it i influence the stabilization of our society it wouldn't always be good love it how could it always be good right because it's so much in the state of human affairs is is picking the lesser of two evils and i'm not talking about voting i'm talking about you know let's say you see a car crash happening in front of you but you're only your only option is to divert the car from hitting the the mother with the child, you know? Right, right. So, um, an ethical conundrum. Right. Yeah. It comes, builds an interesting discussion about uh, self driving cars and, you know, what to happen. How do you build <laughs> the AI to choose between one human and another? So, fun discussion. <laughs> Well, James, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate talking to you. It's been um, insightful. I've learned a lot. Um, I appreciate you, man. And I look forward to our next time together. I look forward to it, too. Well, folks, that's a wrap for the Homie Hub. Stay chill. Stay curious. I'll catch you on the flip side.